Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. This week is something of a special occasion, a festive occasion, because we begin a discussion of Shakespeare. And when I cast about for which of the 37 plays by Shakespeare, at least those entirely by Shakespeare, that we should begin with, the answer inevitably seemed to be Midsummer Night's Dream. If only because that is the play that has the famous speech by Duke Theseus about the imagination and the catchphrase or motto of Expanding Eyes, both the newsletter and the podcasts, is imagination as the home of human life. Even though Duke Theseus's speech is actually skeptical and ironic, it brings that theme into that play and into the study of Shakespeare in general. We'll actually begin looking at that play next week. I wanted today to provide a brief introduction and background in two directions. First of all, about Shakespeare, the writer and the man, insofar as we know anything. And second of all, about the form that we're going to be studying, the form of comedy. To start with, the Shakespeare question, or what we could call the Shakespeare conundrum, which, if that sounds like the title of a bad sensationalist novel, may be all too appropriate, because what we have to say here is an effort to dispel certain amounts of misinformation, fake information, and rather ungrounded speculation about an author regarded by many people as a sort of international man of mystery. And that mystery, the fact that we don't really know all that much about Shakespeare, is not really a conundrum, though people think it is. It is only because of Shakespeare's prominence, because of the fascination of the plays, that attention gets directed towards the author in a way that would probably not happen with any other writer. And yet, it's futile. First of all, Shakespeare wrote for the popular theater, a popular art form, even though, yes, in the second half of his career, his company began to have royal patronage, and Shakespeare was increasingly involved with the royal court. Still, he was basically a man of a commercial popular art form, one that was not, and meant by many people, very highly regarded. And we don't know all that much about any of his fellow playwrights of that time, and it would not have been expected to know anything about them, any more than we would expect to know much about the people who write television scripts today, or even movie scripts, unless the director is an auteur. There are only a couple of exceptions to that. Ben Johnson is an exception, 
because, for one thing, Johnson was a rather relentless self-publicizer with a large ego and made sure that people knew about him. And second, because Johnson had a rather illustrious second career in the royal court, writing the form of court entertainment known as masks. Therefore, he got himself in the histories. The other one that we know something about is Christopher Marlowe, who became famous for what you might call tabloid reasons, because he lived a sort of tabloid life and got himself into the business of spying and therefore got himself assassinated in a tavern for apparently political reasons. And the bad boy of Elizabethan drama. But we don't know much about Shakespeare precisely because he was not a self-promoter and he was not someone constantly getting himself into trouble and getting the spotlight on himself. He was in fact quite obviously a self-effacing personality. And I think that that is surely connected on some level with Shakespeare's unique ability by effacing his own personality to throw himself into the personalities of a whole multitude of characters. It is exactly that capacity of Shakespeare's that caused Keats to formulate his theory in his letters of negative capability to do what Shakespeare clearly could do, and that is to go out of himself and enter into other lives, contrasted by Keats with what Keats referred to as Wordsworth's egotistical sublime. You can make great art out of your sublime ego, but it's a different kind of art. And Shakespeare was the envy of any number of poets who wanted to write poetic drama, but who lacked exactly that capacity. Therefore, it's not surprising that we know only a minimal amount, but it drives some people crazy, almost literally crazy in a few cases, and it has given rise to two impulses, both of them rather futile. One is the itch to fill out the blank spaces in Shakespeare's biography by speculating and outright inventing. And that has been a windfall for some people because entire novels have been written filling out Shakespeare's unknown biography, entire movies like Shakespeare in Love, and so forth, and, you know, great fun, but not really very productive in terms of actually knowing anything. The other thing that has happened is the conspiracy theory, the theory that Shakespeare didn't really write those plays, but someone else did. There is absolutely no ground for this conspiracy theory, which has many different forms and many different proposals of, okay, if he didn't, well, who did then? 
the most frequent one being Sir Francis Bacon, but there's absolutely no reason to suggest that Shakespeare wasn't really the author of those plays. All of his contemporaries seemed quite content to acknowledge that he did write those plays and to suggest that there is some sort of cover-up is start, starting to go in the direction of rather wacky conspiracy theories. The only reason anybody has is the reason adduced that, well, he couldn't possibly have known all that. He didn't have a very elegant education. He didn't go on to university the way that Ben Johnson did. He didn't hang out in the royal courts except in the second half of his career. He couldn't have possibly known all the things that he betrays knowledge of in those plays, which is absolute nonsense. If that were the case, it would invalidate the identities of two-thirds of the writers of historical novels in our time. It is simply an itch to do something with what seems to be an unbearable mystery about the identity of the man widely considered to be our greatest poet. It would be a lot better if we would simply stop trying to construct theories that can't be proved and that just progressively get nuttier and nuttier and look instead at the self-effacing quality of Shakespeare, which included the fact that he made no attempt to collect those plays for posterity. Well, that may seem weird and extreme, but in fact, once again, this is popular art and it was not. The eccentric thing would have been to collect them, and the only one who did was Ben Jonson, who collected his plays, edited them, and published them as the works of Ben Jonson, and, as Northrop Fry quips, got teased for that by friends who said, they aren't works, Ben, they're plays. Lighten up. Shakespeare's lack of any attempt to collect those plays was simply, you know, you don't collect television scripts. And if it were not for two actor friends of his who collected the bulk of the plays, not all of them, but the greater number of them, in the famous first folio of 1623, we simply wouldn't have many of those plays. It's extraordinary and rather frightening and yet deeply true. He made no attempt at posterity. He was aware, clearly, of the writer's itch to be immortal through one's writing. That is a major theme in the sonnets, for example. But he did not do that himself in his plays. And, as a footnote, the sonnets are a place where many conspiracy theories come to rest because there, some people feel, Shakespeare finally dropped the mask a little and was at least guardedly autobiographical. But we have no idea whether that is completely true, partly true, or completely untrue, whether the characters, including the persona who speaks the bulk of the sonnets, is yet 
another dramatic mask of Shakespeare simply in another genre, or whether it is partly autobiographical or completely confessional autobiographical, we have no idea and we'll probably never be able to prove anything in either direction. I make a point of this only because these things, like most conspiracy theories, they're, they're like vampires. They are deathless and you just look for a stake to drive through their heart and rarely find it. They keep lurking around. It is possible to say some things about Shakespeare's life. We do know some things. They are brief, but they would make a kind of a reasonable-sized obituary in a modern paper, and they can be recounted, as I intend to do right now, in just a few moments. If you want more than that, I suggest, I recommend, the works of one of Shakespeare's biographers, Samuel Schoenbaum, in particular, William Shakespeare, A Compact Documentary Life, first published in 1977, which has the virtue of only talking about, as its title elicits, only talking about what can be documented about Shakespeare's life, not all of the speculative stuff. Schoenbaum also has larger works that go further than that, but if you want just the facts, ma'am, William Shakespeare, A Compact Documentary Life by Samuel Schoenbaum is a good place to start. Then you know you are getting facts. But let me talk about what we do know quickly in a sort of a format that, as I say, would make a reasonable-sized obituary in a modern paper. What we know for sure about Shakespeare. First of all, birth and death dates. Shakespeare's birth and death dates are listed as April 23rd, 1564 to April 23rd, 1616. So that Shakespeare died presumably on the day he turned 53, which would have been an average to even longish lifespan at that period of time. Lifespans were not, on average, very great in those days. However, you may be tempted to think, symmetrical guy, born and died on the same day. Well, we don't exactly know that for sure. This is traditional. We know that Shakespeare died on April 23, 1616. That is documented. We know that he was baptized on April 26, 1564. And therefore, it has just become traditional to fix the birth date as three days before that on the 23rd to make it symmetrical with the additional lure that April 23rd is in England, St. George's Day, the patron saint of England. So, April 23rd, 1564, April 23rd, 1616. He was born in Stratford-upon-Avon, as many people know, in Warwickshire. It was a country town, and north of it was the Forest of Arden, 
which, at least in the name, shows up in the play As You Like It, and also in his mother's maiden name, which was Mary Arden. His father was John Shakespeare, who was a glover and tanner, not a butcher, as in one of the famous apocryphal stories about Shakespeare delivering speeches working in his father's butcher shop while he was chopping meat. Not. John Shakespeare, Glover and Tanner, rose to be one of Stratford-upon-Avon's more prominent citizens, but then for various reasons ran into financial difficulty when Shakespeare was in his teens, even took to rather uh, hiding out uh, lifestyle for some time, and it was Shakespeare's later success, his monetary success in the theater, that helped to repair the family fortunes. Shakespeare's father is pretty much established as having been what we could call a closet Catholic in that time. And this is pertinent to the vexed question of Shakespeare's religious point of view. The answer is we have no idea what Shakespeare's religious point of view would have been, at least in terms of institutional commitments. But we do know that his father was a closet Catholic closet because if you had any sense in that era, you kept your Catholicism in the closet. It was illegal to be a Catholic in Shakespeare's England, and there was a pretty obvious reason for that, a little thing called the Spanish Armada in 1588, when Catholic Spain tried to invade England and failed, courtesy of a huge storm, and the fleet was scuttled. But the paranoia born out of that, even though it was a failed invasion, made England virulently anti-Catholic, and that lasted up to the verge of modern times, not helped by some monarchs who were themselves Catholic and muddied the waters, but at any rate, Shakespeare's father was apparently privately a Catholic, whether Shakespeare was that himself, whether he was a Protestant, and that would have been the thing to be if you wanted to curry favor with the Protestant monarchy, or whether he was a private atheist, or a kind of semi-public one like Marlowe, is completely speculative. Shakespeare was the third of eight children, though many died early. He did have a brother who became an actor in London. We know this because Christopher Shakespeare died, and we have documents where Shakespeare arranged the funeral. Shakespeare had a solid education at grammar school. He was not poorly educated. That's another myth. He was reasonably educated. Ben Jonson's famous description of Shakespeare as having little Latin and less Greek was quite simply true of 
almost everyone, almost everyone had little Latin and less Greek. Knowledge of Greek was only beginning to return in the Renaissance, and it was only someone with more pretensions and a university education like Johnson would, who would have had the Latin, or Milton, for example. But education is a funny thing. It's not how much you have, but what you do with what you've got. And you can pile your head with all sorts of erudition, and it simply may not do you all that much good, or you can work with a modest amount of knowledge and education and make it work for you in a way that Shakespeare clearly did. And at age of 18, Shakespeare married Anne Hathaway. There has been constant speculations of a troubled marriage. It's speculative based on a few facts that could indicate a certain problematic element, though not necessarily. But Anne Hathaway was, for one thing, eight years older than Shakespeare, and their first child was born six months after the marriage. In other words, she was pregnant. In other words, it's quite plausible that they got married because they had to. She was pregnant. Does that mean it was a bad marriage? Of course, not necessarily. Shakespeare did live in London and had what we would call a commuter marriage to Stratford-on-Avon, which was about a day travel away. And much has been made over the years of the will, the phrase in the will, about bequeathing his wife the second best bed, though people like Schoenbaum are quick to point out that this is not necessarily problematic at all. The second best bed might have been the actual marriage bed. The best bed is the bed reserved for company. Who knows? They had three children, Susanna, born in 1583, and twins, Judith and Hamnet, born in 1585. Yeah, Hamnet, who died at the age of 11. All sorts of people have then been provoked to wonder about the ghostly presence, pun quite intentional, of the lost Hamnet in the play Hamlet. James Joyce has his semi-autobiographical character, Stephen Dedalus, give a whole speech in a library using that as part of his speculation. However, it is speculation. Then, the real treat for those who would write novels or films about Shakespeare and fill in the gaps. The big gap, the lost years of Shakespeare, uh, the birth of the twins in 1585 is the last reference to Shakespeare's early life. And we only hear of him again in 1592 
when he has clearly already been in London working in the theater for some time, enough time to have provoked the jealousy of a rival playwright named Robert Greene. The first reference to Shakespeare professionally is an attack by Robert Greene on this upstart in 1592. So we have those years that you can fill in with any sort of adventures that you want. One rumor is that he was a school teacher in Stratford. Uh, it could have been, but it's not documented, etc. Shakespeare's career, the plays themselves, are in three pretty clearly marked phases. Early Shakespeare, Middle Shakespeare, Late Shakespeare. And they are marked, to some degree, by events in the outer world. In 1592, Shakespeare was clearly in the theater. He was writing, most likely, plays of his apprenticeship period, like the Henry VI plays, which really are apprentice work. You know, great genius, but the Henry VI plays, which may not be entirely by his own hand, but he clearly had a major influence in hand in are imperfect, shall we say. And so his, his first attempt at a tragedy, Titus Andronicus, if you doubt that they are relatively immature, go try to read them. We are not going to deal with them except tangentially in terms of podcasts, though of course they have the fascination of showing a writer's beginnings. But the early period ended in 1592 because the theaters were closed for a good long time, 1592 only to open again in 1594 because of plague. Their own pandemic helped by the fact that the Puritans, who were the middle class, who more or less ran things or tried to run things in the city of London, disapproved on religious and moral grounds of all theater and looked for any excuse to shut the theaters down. But at any rate, the theaters closed because of plague and only opened again two years later. And when Shakespeare came back upon the stage again with new plays in 1594 and following, one of the first of which is indeed Midsummer Night's Dream, his artistic maturity had taken a leap that you do not have to be a literary critic to be quite aware of. Something had happened there. It is quite plausible, if not probable, that during the gap there, Shakespeare used his free time to write the sonnets and two narrative poems both of which, the sonnets and the narrative poems, do the more expectable thing of networking, as we would say, with the aristocracy and the nobility. If he's closed out of his popular career, maybe he can curry some favor and patronage amongst the elite. And it's quite plausible that he did so during that period of time, though we don't know exactly. At any rate, 
the theaters opened again in 1594, Shakespeare became eventually part owner of the Globe Theater, one of several theaters. He was the principal playwright. He was an actor of minor roles, including the ghost in Hamlet. And the company thrived. And when Elizabeth finally died after an enormously long reign and James I came to the throne, Shakespeare's company became the king's men. From being the Lord Chamberlain's men, they became the king's men under James I. And that roughly marks the end of Shakespeare's middle period and the beginning of his mature period. And Shakespeare wrote two plays a year for about 20 years, 37 plays known to be all or almost all by his own hand with a few complications in there and retired fairly affluent to Stratford-upon-Avon around 1613. Had a hand in tinkering with a few plays after that, but basically retired and died in 1616. And there you have all that we truly know and all that we truly need to know, perhaps, about Shakespeare as a man and as a professional playwright. We begin with a comedy, and that brings us to a question about the genres or categories of play that Shakespeare wrote in. He wrote in four genres, a fancy French word. I've never known why we imported a difficult to pronounce, at least for English speakers, French word that simply means category or type of play. But the four genres of play that Shakespeare wrote in were tragedy, comedy, the history play, and the late romances, also known occasionally as tragicomedies. And of these, tragedy and comedy were, of course, familiar because they have a pedigree going all the way back to the classical world, to Greek and especially to Roman drama. Shakespeare's early career, both his apprentice period and some of the early mature career, were dominated, in fact, by the history plays and the comedies. Then in his middle period, he began to write what are sometimes simply referred to as the great tragedies, the tragic period. That begins with Julius Caesar, rather hesitantly, uh, but really is launched, of course, in 1601 by Hamlet. Before that, his greatest successes were with histories and comedies. Histories were basically a native genre, a British genre, and it used to be said that Shakespeare contributed to the genre of history play. More recent critical fashion is to say that he largely invented it and everybody else jumped on, but at any rate, it is a 
local phenomenon, whereas tragedy and comedy, of course, went back to ancient times and had the prestige of that and the models, the models for comedy and tragedy from the Greek and Roman worlds. It also came accompanied by theory, or at least tragedy did. The enormous influence of Aristotle's slight book, The Poetics, a book that you could read in a single night. It's simply not that long. And yet the enormous influence, probably more influence than any single work of literary criticism ever since, over centuries, largely focused on tragedy because tragedy was to Aristotle the greatest of the poetic art forms. There was a, alleged to be a second work by Aristotle on the theory of comedy, but it was lost if it ever really existed. There have been speculations ever since about what was in it, and there is a pamphlet called the Tractatus Coislinianus that exists that purports to be largely the contents of Aristotle's lost treatise on comedy. Uh, this was a work that was an influence on Northrop Frye's theory of comedy in Anatomy of Criticism and elsewhere. But at any rate, tragedy was the form of prestige. It was the serious form, the admired form. Epic and tragedy, as we have seen with Milton, are the forms that major poets might attempt. Comedy has always had a bad reputation, or at least a shaky one, based partly on the fact that, okay, what is comedy? The word comedy to us is associated with laughter, and it was mostly to older times as well, but not entirely. To a literary critic, a comic work is not necessarily a work designed to provoke laughter. It is a work of a certain structure. The structure of tragedy, high school teachers draw it on the board sometimes because it's a good learning tool. An inverted U-shape, the tragic hero rises to an eminence and then through misfortune and or the hero's own faults. The action takes a twist, a turn, and descends into catastrophe, which is actually a technical term. Comedy is a structure with a happy or desirable ending, at least for the sympathetic characters. It descends into catastrophe, reaches a point of crisis at the bottom of a regular U-shape, and twists around upward again towards a happy ending. And the beginning of the shaky, questionable reputation of comedy is, well, that's not reality. That's not serious. That's wish fulfillment. That's maybe for kids. That's maybe for immature people. But tragedy, that's real life. Irony, that's real life. Shakespeare, however, is quite possibly at his greatest 
or is at least as great in his comedies and the romances, which are really expansions and final developments of the comedies at the end of his career, as he is in the great tragedies. That is a challengeable statement, but it is one worth exploring. And we will begin by exploring it in a play that is often regarded as rather fluffy, but I will make a very serious attempt to show that it is not next week, Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. 